to commemorate Reformation Sunday, I have Playmobil Martin Luther, who's with me. Uh, Martin Luther was, was one of the guys that stood up and said, time out. Uh, what is being preached and taught by the church is not right. Uh, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, uh, through the scriptures alone. Uh, that is, it is not the church that gives authority to the scriptures, it is the scriptures that give authority to the church. And uh, because of Martin and other courageous guys, uh, we were able to reform and reset as a church to focus on that which is crucial, uh, the, the true gospel. And so we want to commemorate those, go those who have gone before us and to continue to follow in their steps as we are always uh, reforming uh, back to the gospel and to the scriptures. And in that uh, vein, we will look at our scripture today, which is 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49, which can be found on the back of your bulletin or on the screen. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, for there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from glory from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The word of the Lord. Well, Halloween is fast approaching. And uh, some of you don't quite know what to make of Halloween. Where does it come from? What, it's, what is it about? Halloween actually has a Christian heritage, though it has wandered somewhat far from its original uh, uh, intentions. Uh, it's a celebration that starts what's called All Hallow Tide. Uh, and uh, that is uh, tomorrow uh, after Halloween is All Saints Day or All Hallows Day. Hallow actually means saint, uh, in which the church would remember the martyrs and the saints, those who have gone before. That's November 1. And then November 2 is All Souls Day, in which the church remembers all who have departed, uh, not just those who were martyred for their faith. And so there is a Christian heritage, although it was kind of uh, started a little strange, and part of this was from the church's teaching. They were still figuring things out. 
that during All Hallows' Eve, that people would go what was called souling. They would go to different houses, and in, in exchange for cakes, soul cakes, they would pray for the souls of the departed, who they believed uh, were possibly in purgatory, that they would be freed uh, from purgatory. This was the errant teaching of the church. Well, when the Reformation came around and the scriptures were examined and it was seen there is no purgatory, uh, some of these traditions still remain. And indeed, uh, when they were combined with Irish and Celtic folklore, uh, thus came the costumes and the warding off the spirits of the dead and so on, and then you throw in some commercialism and you've got Halloween. Voila! Uh, why do I tell you all of those things? I don't really know why. I just felt like it. But one of the things you will see on Halloween is people are dressed up in costumes. And one of the costumes you will observe is that of the zombie. Uh, zombies have never been more popular than they are now, right? Uh, it's, uh, and indeed, it's not just on Halloween where we uh, see zombies. All you have to do is turn on the TV and there have been these hit shows, you know, The Walking Dead, The, the Last of Us, several movies in the past, World War Z, I Am Legend. I prefer Pride and Prejudice with zombies, which I think is an absolute stunner. Uh, you know, but it's very interesting, these zombies, they've evolved, right? You know, from The Walking Dead to their remarkably agile and strong, uh, despite not having eaten for years and missing an arm, uh, they're unbelievably fast. Uh, and uh, you can't kill them. Um, you know, they're already dead, exactly. You know, sociologists have actually studied this phenomenon. Why are we fascinated with zombies? And this is the best of what they've come up with. That zombies reflect our unconscious fear of our destiny. That a zombie is how we will eventually end up. Lacking emotion, lacking joy, disconnected from our fellow man, only feeling the relentless urge to consume. That zombies really are us, a heedless plague of humanity consuming the world. Pretty profound. You know, the goal in all of these zombie movies is to try to resist them, right? But it is futile and pointless, because in the end, we turn up like them. You know, that's our best answer for death that we can come up with. Secularism has no answer for death. But into this secular world, into history itself, steps Jesus Christ. And Jesus, this Jesus who in his death and in his resurrection shows us that death is not the end. That the end is not annihilation or perpetual corruption. That the dead can be resurrected, not just resuscitated. That Jesus Christ himself in his resurrection is the template for all who would follow him. He blazes the trail for his people. See, contrary to many people's belief of who Jesus is, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And the grace that Jesus gives to those who follow him is but the glory that has begun in us and our bodies. And glory is but his grace completed in us at the end. And so Paul is trying to explain these things to the Corinthians. 
And he gives in this passage three important realities that we must understand. Number one, that the old body must go to make way for the new. Number two, that the heavenly body is higher than the earthly. And number three, that our model for the body is Jesus Christ. So let's dig into these. The first, that the old body must go to make way for the new. In the beginning, Paul asks a rhetorical question, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? See, there was an incredulousness of the Corinthian community that said this is ridiculous, right? How, how are the dead raised? What body do they come with? Do they just come out of the ground? See, they said that because they were very familiar with death. Death in our culture is something that we hide, right? You have to go through two or three hospital doors to get to it. We're insulated from it. Rather, it's sort of like entertainment that we view. But back then, and not too long ago, in countries like ours, death was a grim reality that people experienced, right? Grandmother wouldn't go to the hospital to die. She would die in the home. The livestock around, they would see the effects of death and how quick death begins to work on the body. It doesn't take long before that life goes away. And they knew that people don't come back. There are no zombies, that death is the end. And so they're asking this question, how does this really happen, Paul? Really, do they just come back? And Paul responds, you foolish person. He gives an agrarian example. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, maybe of wheat or some other grain. He's saying, when you take a seed and you put it in the ground, what comes forth is not the seed, but something else. He's not really talking about the seed dying as much as he's talking about a transformation that happens to the seed. Though there is a parallel, right? The seed is put in the earth. But rather, the initial form, the seed that is sown, the kernel, is very, very different from what comes forth. That God miraculously transforms this seed with a new body that's green and it's thriving. In other words, bodies change in nature, so why don't you think that human beings' bodies can change too? Notice what Paul says, you fool. And he's not just talking about you fool as in you're not smart. Fool is a term of uh, a spiritual term. The scriptures say that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. See, what they're not taking into account, these doubters, is that there is a God who has the ability to transform our bodies. They understand that the body cannot transform itself, but they're disregarding the power and presence of God. It's not too different from the atheist or the secular age that we live in right now, right? Let's take God out of the equation. But the problem is when you do that, there are no answers for the future or for the past. See, secularists will tell you that something cannot come from nothing, right? It just doesn't work that way. 
So if you ask them, well, where did all of creation and matter come from? They'll say, well, it was the Big Bang, right? It was this singularity that went ahead and exploded and all this manner came. And when you ask them the question, well, where did the Big Bang come from? They say, well, it was the Big Bang, right? Kicking the can down. See, the only answer to this question of how something can come from nothing is that there is a something that has always existed. Something that is not created or a creature, but a creator, God himself. So that's what Paul is saying. That's who he's talking to. And he's saying that unless there is this process of dying or transformation, as long as that grain of wheat keeps on trying to be a kernel in the head of a stalk of wheat, it remains just that. It's only when it's detached and it falls to the ground that that transformation process begins because the old must go in order to make way for the new. Paul continues, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed it is his own body. It is God is the one who does the transforming, And furthermore, he has already chosen specific bodies in nature for everything, whether it be seeds, a wheat seed that turns into a wheat plant, an acorn that ultimately becomes an oak tree. And he goes on to talk about flesh, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. He's extending this Uh, illustration to the world of animals, that all animals have a natural telos, which means a natural goal or an end, their final form. And the telos of a bird is radically different from a human, is radically different from a fish. Their form, their nature, they differentiate from each other. See, how do you know when you're looking at a creature, that it's a penguin. Well, it looks like a penguin, and it acts like a penguin. Therefore, it's a penguin. Paul is saying that the universe is like that. Not only seeds, not only animals, but indeed, there are two specific classes of bodies out there, earthly bodies and heavenly bodies. There are earthly bodies and heavenly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. Two telosses, if you will. The earthly, which is what Paul has been talking about, the flesh, the bodies of animals and seeds. But the heavenly is of a higher order. And even within the heavenly, there is different types of bodies, right? There's one glory of the sun and one of the moon and one of the stars. But what is the key difference between these earthly bodies and the heavenly bodies? And the answer is glory. That the heavenly body is of a higher glory, a glory that is impossible to receive on planet Earth, no matter how beautiful it is. This word glory in the Greek is the word doxa, which 
can be translated as splendor or majesty or honor. In Hebrew, the word is kavod, which means weightiness, the weightiness of somebody's life. See, that's what he's saying is that there is this glory that the resurrection is a transformative process moving from one degree of glory to another. And that God has a specific glory in mind that he will transform his people into. But that death is the door to transformation. That the old has got to go in order for the new to come. Psychology Today is probably the most famous magazine in the world about psychology. And throughout the years and the decades, they have done studies. And one of the studies they do is how satisfied people are with themselves and their overall appearance. And it will not surprise you that the majority of men and women are dissatisfied with their overall appearance, which includes the Hollywood beauties as well when they are taken uh, when uh, anonymous surveys have been done of them. And one of the big issues, apparently, is weight. They have uh, done studies and the uh, models of the 1950s and 60s and 70s and 80s and so on have progressively gotten thinner and thinner as the uh, standards and pictures of what beauty is have changed. The overwhelming majority of women, 89%, want to lose weight. They went so far as to ask the question, how many years of your life would you trade to achieve your weight goals? And the findings are astounding. 15% of women and 11% of men said that they would sacrifice more than five years of their lives. 24% of women and 70% of men said that they would give up more than three years to make their target weight goals. See, the question we have to ask is, what do you see when you look in the mirror? My image, of course, is just one piece of me. There's my character as well. But when I look in the mirror, do I see disappointment? Do I see failure? Do I have revulsion? To be sure, we feel the effects of the age, right? We see the effects of the corruption of our, on our bodies. And some of us, we look to the self-help gurus that I need to fix my body. I need to attain as much glory as possible. And so we diet and we exercise and we look at the pictures of the magazines because one thing is for sure that our world is absolutely obsessed with the body. But it's of no use. Ultimately, all bodies will see corruption. Now, I'm not saying we don't care for our bodies. We are stewards of them, right? Take care of our bodies because where else will we live if we don't have them? But what I'm saying is that we should not worship this body because this is not the final destination. It is not who we ultimately were made to be. See, there are two ways to look at it. 
I can look at my life and I can look at my body and say, this is the end. Or I can say, this is the beginning. For those who see it as the end, they can only live in fear and desperation. But those who see that it is the beginning, they can look with hope. For my frailty and my fragility and my foibles and my issues and my problems, that's not the finality of who I am. That there is a greater story, there is a greater end that I am living in right now. You know, the way you see and treat your body and yourself is a witness to the world. Because the world is absolutely obsessed with the body. See, grace, the grace that Jesus Christ gives to his people is but glory begun. The beginning of a process, a transformative process, in which from the inside out, he intends to reform us into his image. That of a glory that is higher than that of this corruptible earth. But the old must give way to make ready for the new. Am I clinging on to this old life as tight as I can? Or am I forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, pressing on toward the goal for which Christ, God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus? This brings me to my second point, that the heavenly body is higher than the earthly. There are different characteristics we see in this central area of the passage between the pre-resurrection body and the post. In verse 42, Paul uh, sums up what he's been talking about. It says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. He's saying that the human body that we are in right now is the seed that the human body is perishable. It's frail and it's fragile and it's subject to decay. See, this is why 80-year-olds don't look like 15-year-olds. I know, I know. The body is dying. But what is raised is imperishable. What is raised is immortal. It cannot die. It cannot be destroyed. It is not subject to death and decay and disease. He goes on to say that it is sown in dishonor and it is raised in glory. See, we are children of the earth and children of Adam and our bodies are born corrupted by sin. Not only our bodies, but all of us, that death and decay works in all aspects of our life. It's amazing what has uh, we can do to one another, right? This world that has been placed under the curse, that it is our bodies that lead us into rebellion against God. And the history of the world is a sad and sordid story of the horrible things that we do to one another. The words that we say, the actions that we take, the games that we play. But what is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. This glory means that this body, this new creation, will be beautiful and glorious. 
that there will be no moral or physical imperfection in it whatsoever. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. He's speaking tongue-in-cheek about that. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Because it is sown in dishonor and raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and it is raised in power. Human beings are weak. We have very little physical weapons on board of our bodies, right? Teeth or claws or super speed or strength compared to the animal world. A baby, when you're born as a baby, a baby has to constantly be cared for or it will die within hours, right? As opposed to in the animal world, which is astounding what creatures can begin to do. You know, why do we have to have so many shots and boosters? Animals aren't doing that. The reason is because if we didn't, we would get wiped out by smallpox or polio or whooping cough or the flu. We feel the effects and it doesn't take long for hunger or thirst or heat or coldness. We're sown in weakness but raised in power. Jesus Christ's resurrection was the perfect example of that. They absolutely destroyed Jesus Christ's body. Okay, what went into the grave was a quivering, not even quivering mass of flesh. But what came out of the grave was perfectly whole, perfectly beautiful. You ever wonder why didn't they recognize him? Because they weren't looking for him. They certainly weren't expecting um, him in his form, this form that was able to walk through walls. It's interesting the fascination that we have with superheroes, right? Zombies on one end, superheroes on the other. Those who have a power over death. And that was Jesus Christ. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. What does he mean there? When he says it's sown a natural body, what it means is a, a body that functions, that is sustained by natural processes, chemical reactions, the elements of this earth. The, the, the corruption of this earth is how the body continues to run. I don't have time to talk about the Krebs cycle. If I did, uh, I would go ahead. But it has raised a spiritual body. Is he saying that we are raised as ghosts of some sort? And the answer is no. Whenever the Bible uses the word spiritual in the New Testament, it means full of the Holy Spirit. The body that is raised is human and corporeal. Remember Jesus who said to his disciples, come and touch my hands and my side. Feel me. It is not a ghost. Indeed, he even said, do you have something to eat? And ate a piece of broiled fish in their presence. Now he's saying that this body, this new body, is empowered not by the natural elements, but by the Holy Spirit itself. Well, don't we have the Holy Spirit now? And the answer is yes and no. 
We do have a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us. And we, if you are a Christian, have undergone a spiritual resurrection. The old is gone. The new has come. I will put a new heart in you, a new spirit. But that resurrection has not yet extended to our bodies. Romans 8.10 puts it this way. But if Christ, the spirit of Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of Jesus Christ is in you, he will raise your mortal bodies. So we do not lose heart, 2 Corinthians 4.16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And so what Paul is saying is that this body that is raised will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus Christ. Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and resurrected him will do the exact same thing in us. Because Jesus was a man just like us. I don't know if you're familiar with the term ubermensch. It was a term that was used in Hitler's Aryan mindset of Aryan purity. Remember, he wanted to create a master race of ubermensch or supermen. They actually initiated a breeding program, the Lebensborn, where they would put together the most desirable looking people uh, to breed. Indeed, if you were uh, what was called a Hunenmensch, if you were over six feet, six inches, you were automatically given a medal and promoted uh, to being an SS officer, irregardless of whether you were an idiot or not. But let me tell you something about the Hunenmensch. They're all dead now. The Lebensborn, they're all dead or they will be soon. Because they still have the characteristics of the earthly flesh, which is sown in weakness and dishonor and death, and decay. See, the world has a standard that, by the way, all of us fall short of because it's an airbrush standard. It's an impossible standard. But even if you were to attain it, it would still be below the heavenly standard because it is subject to corruption and death and weakness. But there is a new order that has begun with a spiritual resurrection inside of us that will ultimately manifest itself in our physical resurrection because grace is but glory begun and glory is but grace completed. This brings me to my final point, that our model is Christ. See, in the end, there are only two image bearers that we descend from, two root stock, two seeds, All of us are born in Adam. Verse 45, thus as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
Adam became a living being, but the fruit of his life was death. And all of his progeny, which are humanity, carried the same curse of corruption and weakness. See, that first man, verse 47, was from the earth, a man of dust. And when he's speaking of dust, he's talking about dust in the sense of the fallen, the mortal and corruptible. For the dust doesn't have life, right? The dust bowl, remember that? There's no life in it. From dust you came, and from dust you shall return. That is the curse. But the second man bears the image of heaven. Jesus Christ became a life-giving spirit. Now, we already went over this, right? It doesn't mean that he became a ghost. He did not become the Holy Spirit. But his ministry now takes place as he is the one who provides the Holy Spirit to his people. Remember that John the Baptist said that this is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That Jesus Christ is the one who has received the promise of the Holy Spirit and poured it out on his people, beginning this transformation. As was the man of the dust, so also are those who are of the dust. Just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. If you are a Christian, your ultimate destiny is not decay and corruption. Your ultimate destiny is to bear the image of Jesus Christ. The qualities of Christ, the nature of Christ. Not like clones, but of the same order, the same body, manifesting his holiness and glory through our unique personalities. See, the zombie receives this infection, which leads to its telos, destruction and decay. But it's Christ in us who is the hope of glory. The scriptures say that our citizenship is in heaven, and we await from it a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So I conclude with this thought. If you feel the corruption of the world in your body, if you long for a new body, if you long for a glory, a heavenly glory, the answer is Christ in you. That Christ has done a work that has begun in a spiritual resurrection that will ultimately manifest itself in a physical. Because the grace of Jesus Christ is but glory begun in us. And at its proper time will culminate in grace completed, glory revealed. Put your hope in Jesus Christ and what he has for us and not in the world. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you that you who have begun this good work in us will be faithful to complete it. God, your grace is but glory begun. And so let us not fix our eyes on the things of this world. Let us not endlessly uh, continue our self-improvement projects. 
But let us seek more and more to put more and more of ourselves underneath your command and lordship as we eagerly await for our redemption. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.